Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Tom DiLorenzo. Tom's the best-selling author of The Problem with Socialism, The Problem with Lincoln, and many other books, including two of my favorites, Hamilton's Curse and How Capitalism Saved America. He's also a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute and taught university economics for 41 years. Tom has written for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Washington Post, Reader's Digest, Barron's, and many other publications. And he joins me today to talk about his new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. So, Tom, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be with you, Tom. Most people are familiar with you from your history books, books like The Real Lincoln and Hamilton's Curse. But while you were writing those best-selling books, during the day, you were actually an economics professor teaching in a university. And now we have this book from you, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. What inspired you to write this and what's politically incorrect about economics? Well, it, it all depends on the type of economics. And I, uh, I was an economics professor for 41 years and at several different universities. And, the, and my Lincoln and Hamilton books, by the way, I consider them to be economic history books, not just plain history books. But anyway, uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics, Regnery asked me to, to publish it as part of the series. There are about 30 of them altogether in, in the series, the Politically Incorrect Guide series. And there's always been a big bias in, in, in economics, in the economics profession, the academic economics profession, in favor of, of interventionism, you know, government planning, and so forth. And it's always been the majority. And the, the people like myself have been sort of the remnant of the free market economists and so forth. And I, I begin the book by quoting Doug Casey, the, uh, the Wall Street investor and a well-known author, as uh, saying very snidely, he says that the most economists, especially the ones you see on TV or writing in the New York Times, are essentially, he calls them political witch doctors who are masquerading as neurosurgeons. They want people <laughs> to think they have very big brains and they're, and they're very smart and you should take their advice. And, uh, and so much of the book 
is is looking at things the economics profession has said about how rotten mar- capitalism and markets supposedly are and how wonderful government bureaucrats are in solving all the problems that we uh, we stupid uh, civilians create for ourselves. And so several of the chapters are about about the market failure. And then my publisher got, you know, after I quoted Doug Casey as saying that about the witch doctors, there's a blurb in the front cover by Ben Carson, the famous brain surgeon, that says, economics is not brain surgery, Ben Carson. So before we get to the actual economics that you teach in the book, most people think about the history of economics as starting somewhere around Adam Smith. But economics as a profession, you talk about that being somewhat problematic right from the beginning. What was wrong with economics as a profession when it started in the 1880s? It didn't really start as a profession in terms of academic economics until the 1880s. And even then, there were only a dozen or so people who had full-time jobs teaching economics. It was a very small club there. And it it was founded by such people as Richard T. Ely, who was taught at Johns Hopkins for many years, and then he moved to Wisconsin later. And he was educated in Germany, got his PhD in Germany. And there was something called the German Historical School at that time of history. And they basically disavowed the teachings of basic economics, uh, supply and demand and opportunity costs, the things that uh, you know the average college freshman would learn all about today, really, if they took a, an economics course. And they they moved in the direction of using sort of ad hoc use of statistics and, and, his, and historical stories to justify basically interventionism. They, they were progressives and they wanted to use government to create heaven on earth or a version of heaven on earth. And they did not shy away from the connection of the state and the church. They were many of them were who believe that the government should try to create, stamp out, quote, sin. The Catholic, at one point, the Catholic Church was divided as the, the category of sin, along with alcoholism, that they wanted to stamp out the progressives. And, and so they wanted to create heaven on earth by connecting church and state with them as advisors. And they, in, their, in their founding document of the American Economic Association, they said that laissez-faire capitalism was unsafe in practice and unsound in morals, and they made a big pitch for more government interventionism. And they even made a reference to sort of Marxian class theory about the class struggle between the working class and the and that's and so that's that's who founded the American Economic Association. So you you advocate for the free market and say you're part of the remnant who still believes in it. Isn't it true, though, that the free market puts greedy businessmen in charge and that their interests are always going to be conflicting with the average Joe who is just trying to make a living? No, I think the clearest example of why the opposite is true is the television show Shark Tank, where you see these budding capitalists who have an idea or a new product, and they're making a pitch for funding from these wealthy investors on the the TV show. And basically what they're doing is they're uh, thinking of some way to make life a little bit better, a little bit easier for their fellow man. And in return, they hope to make some money. Adam Smith, who you mentioned earlier, the famous book, The Wealth of Nations, he defined capitalism very simply. He, he said, give me that which I want, and I will give you that which you want. And that's what these entrepreneurs on uh, Shark Tank do. 
they're hoping that some product or some service that they're providing is that which you and I want. And we will give them that which they want, which is money. We'll pay for it. And and that's that's the essence of capitalism, which is different. You know, the, I've written several books uh, in opposition to cronyism. You know, once once you get these these business people or capitalists involved in politics, that's where the bad things start happening. That's where they lobby for to keep the competition out, for higher taxes and regulations on their competitors, protectionist tariffs to isolate themselves from competition and to become mega wealthy. But, you know, the Rockefeller, the the John D. Rockefeller, you know, and the so-called robber barons, they never robbed anybody. He he figured out a way to produce uh, refined kerosene, among other things, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper for decades and invented hundreds of new products like Vaseline out of the uh, the byproducts of the refining of oil. And, And that's how he made his money. And, and that's that's true of all the early capitalists. If they become mega wealthy, that's how they did it. And then they reinvest almost all of their money back in, in the stock market and investments in other, other industries like the billionaires on Shark Tank do. But didn't the government have to step in sooner or later with John D. Rockefeller to break up Standard Oil because it was a monopoly that just had complete control over the market? No, it didn't have any kind of control over the market. The government did break up Standard Oil in 1911, but at that time, it still had about 300 competitors, including big corporations like Sun Oil Company, which would be Sunoco at the time. And so what John D. Rockefeller did from when he started his company right after the Civil War, 1866, by buying a single refinery in Cleveland, and he had been in, he was in his 20s. And he had saved every penny from every job he had up to that point to do this. And the end result was that within five or six years, the price of refined oil started falling and it kept falling for the next several decades. And because of the genius of John D. Rockefeller's organization, even his biggest critic of the time, a woman named Ida Tarbell, wrote a book on the history of the Standard Oil Company and admitted that she used the word marvelous, saying it was a marvelous example of efficiency in production and causing the price to go lower and lower and lower to the tremendous benefit of the whole world at that time. And Tarbell's brother was the CFO of a competing oil company, and so she had an axe to grind, and she she smeared Rockefeller as a mean and nasty SOB, but to the consumers, he was he was just anything but that. It was, you know, give us cheaper stuff, you know, year after year. Thank you, Mr. Rockefeller. That's how he made his money. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. 
Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. That just ain't true. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand and follow the golden. So how how did the idea to break them up and antitrust regulation in general come about? It wasn't consumers complaining about rising prices? No, I've, I've published quite a bit in my academic career on the origins of antitrust. It was basically another protectionist piece of legislation sponsored by Senator John Sherman, who was also the sponsor of the McKinley Tariff Bill the same year. And in, in the summer of 1890, Sherman sponsored the McKinley Tariff, which was a big increase in the tariff rates. And everybody at the time knew that high tariffs were associated with monopolization of industry because they kept out international competition. Three months later, in October, they passed the Sherman Antitrust Bill. And in one of my publications, I cite the New York Times as basically saying, we smell a big fat rat here, because the author, the author of the Sherman Antitrust Bill, which they called the Campaign Contributors Tariff Bill, the purpose, the New York Times said, was to bamboozle the public into thinking the Republican Party was on their side after they had just passed this big tariff bill, raising the prices of hundreds of items that the average consumer would buy. And then they published this, this antitrust law, the Sherman Act, which really didn't come into being until late. They didn't really start enforcing it for another 10 or 15 years. And, and the, uh, the Standard Oil case was one of the very first cases. But Standard Oil, uh, they did not find that they hurt consumers one iota, and they, they dropped prices. It was an anti-big business bill. And the beneficiaries of the, of the Sherman Act were smaller or, or even not even smaller, but other businesses who were unwilling or unable to be as efficient as Standard Oil. And therefore, they ran to the government to get the government to punish Standard Oil for being too competitive. So I think a lot of people today, and I hear this all the time, say one of the problems we have is too much consolidation. I'm thinking of the media. There's at least an urban legend that may or may not be true that something like six companies own all of the media, not counting media like this. Is that a natural result of the free market or other forces at work there? And first of all, is it even true? And secondly, what has led to this? Well, economists like myself have known for a long, long time that in the media, you know, it's broadly defined. The Federal Communications Commission has to grant you a license to be a radio station or a television station. And so there's always the threat hanging over your head that if you say the wrong things or you, you, know, you might not get your license renewed or where the government can give you trouble and they don't, or, or you, the owner, can be harassed by the IRS. You know, we're just reading today that the Biden administration is, wants to more than double the number of IRS agents. And it wants to sick them on small businesses, especially, i.e., Republicans. And so, so it's not a never for a long time. It's not been a totally free market. But an example of how the free market is allowed to work, though, is that conservatives complained for decades about the 
liberal bias in television back in the day when we had the big three networks dominated before you could get 5,000 cable channels or satellite channels on your TV. And but that created a profit opportunity for Rupert Murdoch. He created and originally created a profit opportunity for for CNN to appear. CNN was the first news channel to come and compete with the big three. And and nobody thought Ted Turner could get funding for it until Michael Milken, the the bond salesman from Wall Street, put the, the money together. And for that, he was imprisoned. He was he was charged with some phony violation of trading regulation. And, and sent to prison because he had funded competition, not only CNN, but he funded 7-Eleven, mobile kidney dialysis machines that compete. AT&T got competition for the first time with MCI back in that day. And it was all funded by this one guy, Michael Milken and his company. And so he was punished for that by being sent to prison on a kind of a scam prosecution. And But Rupert Murdoch came along, and he saw an opening there. There was a big market for a conservative-oriented television. He created Fox News, just like Ted Turner created CNN to, to you know to to serve the other the other side, the far left-wing extremist side of the American public. So another thing that comes to mind is that both conservatives and liberals seem to favor antitrust legislation sometimes at least. And I'm thinking now of big tech and this big tech censorship that they talk about. And when you talk about something like Facebook or Twitter, I think everybody acknowledges they also have hundreds of competitors, but they seem so dominant. And like I said, even conservatives want to use antitrust regulation or some variation of that against them. Do you think that's the wrong idea and why? Yeah. Well, you know, we don't really know a heck of a lot about Twitter and Google and Facebook as much as we think we do. I've always suspected that there always was a government connection from the very beginning, since the government has always laid claim to the Internet, invented by Al Gore, as you recall, and, uh, and DARPA claims to have invented the Internet. And so the government has always been involved. And I, I would not be surprised to learn that the CIA has always had a big hand in the creation of Facebook. Twitter, Google, and all of this, they, they, they are government contractors. They do a tremendous amount of work with government, for government, the federal government, and probably state governments also. And so it's, it's hard to define these things as, as private institutions in, in that regard where they're so closely associated. And the, and the conservatives in Washington know about this. They, I mean, when I lived in that, that part of the world, I no longer do. It was common knowledge that there was a big revolving door between mostly like the Clinton administration or the Obama administration and all the TV networks, the people that would flood, you know, once there would be a change of administrations, you know, all these left wingers would go right into television. You know, Stephanopoulos being, being the host of Mace the Nation or whatever the name of that, that television <laughs> show is, it would be the, the prime, prime example of that. That's, uh, so it's a sort of a symbiotic relationship between the, the media and the government that has existed for a very long time. And uh, there's no reason to believe it's, it's not true of Facebook and Twitter also. So I wouldn't really call it a free market. Yeah, I've always been suspicious of those apps where you'll you take your picture and feed it into this app and it'll show you what you'll look like 20 years from now or whatever. And I'm thinking... Boy, wouldn't that be useful to have facial recognition 
of a person who may have aged and you don't have a recent picture of them. And now you've given somebody the ability to identify you. I don't know if I'm just paranoid, but that's what <laughs> runs through my mind. So I never do any of those aging apps. Okay. So we have a free market and the invisible hand, which I think you made reference to where people pursuing their own self-interest will nevertheless do good for you and I, because in order to get our money, they have to give us something that's going to please us. But aren't there some products that the government has to provide that that model just doesn't work for, like roads or what was it, lighthouses? Yeah, there's, I have a chapter in the book on uh, sort of the, the, uh, the myth of the, the free rider problem. It has been gro- grossly exaggerated for several hundred years, really. It basically says there are certain things, like you mentioned, like national defense or roads, you mentioned roads, that just the government has to finance them. Might not have to build the roads, but it has to finance them because you can't rely on voluntary donations for something like that. You know, once they're provided, then how are you going to keep people off if, if they didn't pay? Clean air. If the government, clean air is a public good. How, how, do you, how do you keep people from benefiting that or mosquito abatement? Once you kill the mosquitoes and you eradicate the disease, uh, how can you keep one more person from benefiting from, from that? That's the free rider problem. So therefore, the government must force us to pay for all these things. But if you look at it historically, on, on the roads issue, in the early 19th century, uh, thousands of miles of private roads, they were called turnpikes, were built with private funding. At the, at the time when Alexander Hamilton and others were saying, this is impossible. We need, uh, we need government funding. This could never happen. And it was happening right under his nose at the same time because people understood that it was in their economic self-interest to connect your town with the next town over. If you were a merchant, you're in business, that your town will prosper more if you had you know, connections to the outside world. And they had no problem at all getting funding from private funding from all these roads. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think about love with a girl like you? A girl like you. With a girl like you. A girl like you. With a girl like you. And I tell the story of the lighthouse, too, in economics. And some of the big shot economics writers over the years, like Paul Samuelson, who authored a famous textbook that was the bestseller in the world for 40 years, beginning in 1948, is using the lighthouse as an example of a public good that had to be funded by the government. Because once you put that light out there in the 
in the bay so that the ships don't crash on the rocks. He said it's impossible to get the ship's captains to pay for them. They'll just free ride and benefit from the light, but they won't pay you anything. Well, Ronald Coates, who also won the Nobel Prize in Economics, found out that Samuelson and these other people never actually studied the history of lighthouses. They just <laughs> made this up out of thin air. What a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And I, and, I, and I say in the book that you know, Coase did something that these, these MIT economists like Samuelson would never have thought of doing. That is getting up off of their swivel chair and leaving their faculty office and looking around outside. And Coase found out that private lighthouses in England had been built for for decades, if not centuries, by the free market, by capitalists, because they understood there was a big risk involved here. And it was a form of insurance to, to have these lighthouses. And they and they did charge the ship's captains when you when you when you go to the dock to pay to unload your uh, your goods. You're charged a fee for the lighthouse, so, and, and it worked fine. And what happened was the governments decided, well, there's money to be made here. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a monopoly on lighthouses and we could earn these fees? So by, by creating the government monopoly on lighthouses, they were admitting that it is possible to charge a fee because they just wanted to make the fee, take the fee in themselves. And it became a, a source of tax revenue rather than a source of profit by entrepreneurs. And of course, the quality of the lighthouses went down the tubes and the the prices went up and up and up, as is always the case whenever the government runs anything that used to be run by private enterprise. You talk about one other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is what you call the nirvana fallacy. What is it and why is it a fallacy? Yeah, the beginning in the 1930s, economists created a new theory of competition. And it had all of these very strange assumptions behind this, this theory of, of what a perfectly competitive world would be. There would be many firms, whatever many is. They would all produce the same thing. They would all charge the same price. And they assumed that everybody would have what they called perfect information. Businesses would know exactly how to make the least cost a method of producing products Consumers would know everything about what they wanted, what was out there, how to get it, and so forth. Perfection, nirvana, economic nirvana. And the way in which that, that theory was used for decades was economists would spin theories and say, well, here's what perfection looks like. And then they would compare that to the real world. And I used to call it aha in economics because they would say, aha, the real world is not the same as heaven. It's not the same as heaven on earth. It's not, it's not perfect. You know, human beings are imperfect. Therefore, government must step in and regulate and control and perfect the world because government always is perfect, isn't it? Government bureaucrats, politicians, they're assumed to be perfect. And so there's this whole literature on it. It's called market failure. And it commits what the, the economist Harold Demsetz called the nirvana fallacy, a method because the method of scholarship is to posit this perfect world and then compare that to imperfection, which is always with us on earth, and say, aha, the world fails. Perfect government needs to, to perfect this world. And of course, once government gets involved, it usually makes things worse rather than better. Is there any such thing as market failure other than just not achieving perfection? Well, human beings are not perfect. And so, yes, they, we have the way, a more honest way of going about analysis 
is to look at the reality of what happens in markets and then understand the reality of what happens in the in the only alternative way of allocating resources is put politicians in charge. And so under which situation are you likely to be better off? It's, it's not a matter of being perfect in any sense by, by having government do it or capitalists in the free market do it. It's under which scenario are we more, more likely to be better off and happier? And uh, history tells us that economic freedom is hands down orders of magnitude better than government bureaucracy and politics in allocating resources. You just look at the grotesque failures of socialism everywhere and on the planet all throughout history, as far as that goes. So we've only scratched the surface of all the political correctness in economics that you refute in this book. What do you hope that non-economists like myself and most of the people listening take away from this after they're finished with the, the politically incorrect guide to economics? People should think of in terms of becoming your own economist. You can still listen to the big shots on TV and read their columns in the New York Times and the Washington Post if you want, but, but still educate yourself and in my book, there are dozens of tips of reading recommendations. And in keeping with the Politically Incorrect Guide series, they're in a box and it says a book you're not supposed to read. And, and these books that I've chosen are, are not technical. They're all very good, very knowledgeable authors. And they're very interesting books that any, any reasonably educated person could read without all the jargon, usually in, of, of economics books, economics textbooks. And so be your own economist and educate yourself and so that you can be a better judge of what's going on in the economic world. Sounds good. Well, we'll definitely link to your book on the show notes page. And I uh, want to thank you for spending the time. And I hope it's a runaway bestseller. Okay, me too. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.